You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Today we are continuing our discussion through covenant, specifically getting into practical application here in the New Covenant, the New Testament for us as a local church. Uh, specifically today we're looking at uh, the doctrine of baptism, the sacrament, the ordinance of baptism, and how that fits into our understanding of covenant how our understanding of covenant dictates to us how we handle baptism within the local church. And that's kind of been the big thing that I've been emphasizing over the last couple of weeks is that I want us to understand why we do the things that we do based on our understanding of covenant and not based on how we were raised. Because I'm afraid we've got people in this church on both ends of the spectrum that believe things and, and desire for things to be practiced in a certain way based more on how they were raised and what they were taught, more than what they actually believe based on the covenants and how they fit together. Because it's not just on what Bible verses say. Like our understanding of how to baptize in the New Testament cannot be constructed simply on what a few verses say. It's based on how the Bible fits together as a big story, how God is revealing himself through covenants, whether it's uh, covenants in the garden, whether it's the, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, how those covenants fit together, how that story strings together, it dictates to us how we handle baptism in the New Testament. Now, obviously, we've got good, biblical, sound people who see the fitting together of those covenants differently. Um, there are quality individuals that I respect greatly, that I read and study and listen to that would believe completely differently than I do on this topic. So, while I believe it's very clear in Scripture how baptism is supposed to work in the New Testament, there are other godly men that if they walked in here today would probably put me to shame in their understanding of how it fits together uh, in the opposite end of this in regards to infant baptism. I say that to say that we, as Sovereign Hope, leave some leeway there to where people can be a part of our church and disagree on this doctrine and not be forced to agree with us on this doctrine. We had a family visit recently that said that they were looking for a church like ours that believed uh, more of the Reformed traditions like we do, but the churches that they have found in this area don't infant baptize and that they're looking for a specific body of of believers that would do that and kind of caught me and Ben off guard because we were in small group setting. I forget what we were doing that day, but I had you guys discussing things and um, the guy was telling us this and and I, you know, rather than kind of beat around the bush, I just went straight for it and I said, well, we don't do that here. Like as much as we would love to have your family here, we're not going to baptize infants here. Um, And I was able to say that authoritatively, knowing that I had worked through it and had an understanding of why we would not do that. But then I followed up, and one of the issues that he's had with other churches in this area is that other churches in this area have put it upon him to change his position if he's going to be a member of their church. Meaning, you cannot be a member of our church, your kids cannot be a member of our church, unless you participate in believer's baptism. Believer's baptism meaning the baptism happens after salvation. Now, while we believe that, and while that's what we will practice here, and we would expect all of our members to support that, 
we have taken the stance up to this point that we will not require people to be baptized in that way to be a member here. Simply because we want to leave some leeway there that we may be wrong on this issue. Because they are godly men that we respect way too much to say that they are definitely wrong and we're definitely right. Now again, I believe 99.9% that we are correct on this issue. Um, But I've told you before, obviously we have to be humble enough to admit that we're going to be in heaven one day and we're going to realize, eh, we might have been wrong about some things. Um, Clearly we didn't get this right. Clearly we should have seen this better. And, And so I've got to leave some leeway there that, hey, We can't possibly have everything right. Um, We want to be humble enough to admit that we might be wrong in this area. John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist, takes this same stance. They're going to teach and preach believers' baptism. They are going to place that expectation upon the teaching within their church. They're going to place that expectation upon people that are members in their church to support that. But they also allow people who come from a Presbyterian tradition who have been baptized as infants to join in fellowship with their local church and are not going to impose that belief on them in the sense that they now have to follow through with believer's baptism. So I say that to kind of start us off so that we can see that while this is an issue that does divide, we've chosen here at Sovereign Hope to not cause it to divide fellowship to where someone cannot be a member here. Um, We just believe that they're incorrect in their understanding of how the covenants fit together and how that applies to baptism. And And we inform them of that. We inform them that this is our church's position. This is why we believe this. Uh, We would expect as a member here that you would support that position, even though you may personally disagree with it. You may personally have been infant baptized. The understanding, too, is that their children will not be infant baptized here. They'll have to wait until they make a profession. Now, today we're going to see why our church holds to that, why our understanding of covenant, what we've seen up to this point, leads us to those conclusions. I want today to be interactive where it needs to be. So if you've got a question, something's not clear, then I want you to ask. Because again, today's sermon, today's teaching doesn't end with this big application section. It's, it's what we're already doing. Like We already have an understanding of baptism. We're already doing baptism a certain way here. So today's purpose is more to reinforce why we're doing it the way that we're doing it. So if you've got questions, feel free to stop me. Feel free to ask I want it to be more of an interactive teaching time where it needs to be if you guys aren't clearly understanding. Because what I want to do is I want to get to where, if I wasn't in that group with Ben, that Ben could confidently explain, this is why we do baptism the way we do at Sovereign Hope. This is why we're not going to infant baptize your children, and it be based on his understanding of covenant. I'd want that for everybody in our church, to have that type of conversation with somebody. And people are going to potentially come to our church, they see our name, Sovereign Hope, they understand that there's some reformed thinking in what we do here. So it will attract at times people who come from that type of background, and those conversations are going to be very possible here within this church. People coming who have been infant baptized wanting to know where our stance is on that topic. Um, And so it's important for us to all understand so that as we continue to have children here at Sovereign Hope, we're able to communicate to them truthfully, from, from the Bible, why we don't baptize them as infants, why we're waiting until they make a public profession of faith to then baptize them. All right? So we've, we've worked our way through the covenants. We've talked about the covenant of redemption. The Trinity gets together before, the time, before time begins, communicates that there is going to be a plan of saving mankind. The Trinity 
All aspects, God the Father, Son, and the Spirit are going to be involved in that plan of redemption. Covenant of works set up with Adam and Eve where if they obey, they get life. If they disobey, they get death. Then we see the covenant of grace introduced in the garden where God promises to send a a, uh, seed of Eve that will ultimately defeat Satan. We see uh, the building off of that covenant with the Noahic covenant, uh, God promising to withhold judgment till the end. We see that he uh, institutes the Noahic covenant to preserve mankind from an extreme level of wickedness. We see the Abrahamic covenant, God promises eternal life through faith. We see Abraham set up as the example in the New Testament of what saving faith looks like. It it communicates to us that salvation has worked the same all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. God doesn't save in the Old Testament based on works and then on grace in the New Testament. Salvation works the same. Paul uses Abraham as the ultimate example of salvation for New Testament people, and he appeals to his faith in the Old Testament. Uh, God establishes the Abrahamic covenant to preserve a human line for the Messiah. The Mosaic Covenant, God preserves a people. He keeps that that human line that he is growing uh, and establishes an environment of holy living where he separates the children of Israel from the other nations around them and the way they're living and worshiping. The Davidic Covenant, God promises an ultimate ruler. He establishes this to increase a anticipation and a desire for this ultimate king to come. And then we looked at the New Covenant Two weeks ago where God brings salvation, we saw specifically how salvation remains the same. Salvation is the same in the Old Testament. It's the same in the New Testament. Abraham and also Rahab, Old Testament examples of faith that leads to righteousness. Faith that is accounted to them. It's credited to them. Righteousness is credited to their account based on the work of Jesus Christ. It's consistent all the way through. The plan of redemption has always been the same. So that brings us to the newness of the new covenant. What's different about the new covenant? Why do we call it the new covenant in relationship to the old covenant? What is new about the new covenant? Specifically today, we're looking at the covenant sign. The covenant sign is one aspect that's different in the new covenant versus the old covenant. Who receives the sign is different. Our church's understanding is different than those who received the covenant sign. In the Old Testament. All right. We said this from uh, our first time talking about covenant. The defining mark between the church baptizing infants versus not baptizing infants lies in how one understands the continuity of the Old and New Covenants. The defining mark between the church baptizing infants versus not baptizing infants lies in how one understands the continuity of the Old and new covenants. Okay, so we either baptize infants or we don't based on how we understand the continuation of the old into the new. Is there discontinuity? Is there differences in the new covenant versus the old covenant? Or does it virtually remain the same? How, how much continuity exists between the two? So those that baptize infants see great continuity between the covenants. We, we circumcise kids in the Old Testament we circumcise boys in the Old Testament, we're going to baptize children in the New Testament because that's how it was done in the Old Testament. Whereas the the non-infant baptizing view would say, no, there's discontinuity. The whole understanding of the covenant people and who is the covenant people is different in the New Testament, which means we only baptize those that are a part of the covenant community. 
In the Old Testament, the covenant community is the children of Israel and their children and their children and their children. In the New Testament, we would understand God's covenant people to be those that have placed their faith and trust in Christ, regardless of what their parents have done. That that makes up the covenant people. That's what makes up the true local church, even though at times the local church is going to have unbelievers in its midst. We work very hard here at Sovereign Hope. That's why our membership process is so extensive, because we want to believe that our local church right here is made up of believers, that we can call you guys the covenant community, that these covenant promises apply to you as members of Sovereign Hope because you're saved. That's why we don't just let anybody come join Sovereign Hope, even if they're not a Christian. And that's why we work extensively in, in talking with you, sitting down with you, having you sit down with multiple people in our church to flesh out, are you really a believer? Have you really responded to the gospel? Because we believe the local church should be made up of covenant members, people that have put their faith and trust in Christ. Now, again, that's not to say that every single person that passes the membership course is definitely saved. The Bible talks about that, that Satan... Um, he throws the, the tares into the, uh, into the wheat. That there, are, that there are people that will be present in local churches that aren't part of the covenant community. And we may not fully even realize it until everything's come to, to bear. The fruit has been produced and Jesus returns and has to separate. There will be people in local churches that will not enjoy the return of Jesus. They gave all the appearances of being a part of the covenant people, but they weren't actually part of the covenant group. But as much as we can as leadership, we believe that we want to, to move our church in the direction where it's made up of people who are believers. Old Testament, it wasn't the case. Old Testament, you were part of the covenant community if you were born into national Israel. All right, the Pado-Baptist view. The Pado-Baptist view is the view that infants should be baptized. The Pado-Baptist view is that we should baptize infants in the New Testament. The Pado baptist view sees great continuity between the covenants. The Pado baptist view says that God's visible community is mixed, meaning it's made up of believers and unbelievers. So the Pado baptist view carries that same mindset over into the New Testament. Well, Israel had believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. We talked about this before. The remnant of Israel, the true seed of Abraham, were those who were truly saved. But every Israelite is considered covenant members in the Old Testament. They're part of God's covenant people. God interacts with them as though they are his covenant people. The Pado baptist view would carry that over into the New Testament and say it's, it's a mixed community. That's why we can have infants that are baptized that grow up that aren't believers. It's okay to have a mixed community. This view would say that children of believers were always included in the covenant of grace, previously under old covenant administrations. We must assume, apart from biblical warrant to the contrary, that children of believers are to be still included unless the New Testament clearly communicates differently. So this argument, this, this part of the view says, okay, in the Old Testament, children of the covenant people were included. So unless the New Testament explicitly tells us differently, 
we should assume that continues. Unless the New Testament flat out comes out and says, don't baptize infants, then we should baptize infants. Because we're working off of our understanding that, well, God included children in the Old Testament in the covenant community. It makes sense that he would do it in the New Testament community as well. So unless the New Testament tells us explicitly not to do it, then we should do it. Okay? That's the Pado-Baptist view again. B.B. Warfield says, The argument in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism. Okay, so B.B. Warfield saying, um, the New Testament has never told us not to baptize infants. So based on our previous understanding of how God worked through families in the Old Testament, uh, children were included in that, we should assume that they are also included in the New Testament. A credit to this view, circumcision in itself did not save in the Old Covenant. Instead, it was to be accompanied by faith. Baptism does not in itself save, but too must be accompanied by faith later in life. We talked about this earlier a couple weeks ago. It's not that this view says that baptism saves. This view doesn't believe that circumcision saved. The belief in the Old Testament was we circumcise you as a child, but you have to show later on in life that that circumcision is valid, that you have put your faith and trust in Yahweh. So the Presbyterian view, the Pado-Baptist view, and I say Presbyterian view because that's where a lot of these guys that I respect greatly fall into. They pastor Presbyterian churches. The Pado-Baptist view would say um, that, that baptism doesn't save too. So circumcision doesn't save in the Old Testament. Baptism doesn't save in the New Testament. So these guys aren't teaching that if you baptize your child that they're guaranteed to grow up as a Christian. What they're saying is, is that because they are born to believing parents, they enjoy the benefits of being a part of a covenant family. The odds are in their favor that they will grow up and accept Christ as their Savior. We baptize them now in hopes that that baptism will ring true later on in life when they understand the gospel. It's how it worked in the Old Testament. You circumcised your kids. The hopes were that you would, when you grew up, yield to Yahweh. You would submit your life to Yahweh. You would submit to his covenant conditions. So the expectation has always been, from the Pado-Baptist view, circumcision, you get circumcised as a kid, you still got to put your faith and trust in Christ. New Testament, you get baptized as an infant, but you still have to put your faith and trust in Christ. Okay, so they're not teaching a different gospel in the sense of what saves an individual. The outward sign does not save, according to this view. All right, some arguments and support for the Pado-Baptist view. The first one, God worked through families in the Old Testament. He continues in the New Testament. God worked through families in the Old Testament. He continues to do so in the New Testament. The argument is, if you don't have children as part of the covenant community in the New Testament, then the New Covenant is less generous in its application. Does that make sense? That... If the Old Covenant believe, uh, children were allowed in, and then in the New Covenant they're not, it seems less generous. If the New Covenant is supposed to be better, why would we not continue to include infants? 
That's where the argument kind of comes from. It's, it's, it's less generous not to have them in there in the New Testament if they were there in the Old Testament. The appeal is made to Genesis 17.9 and Acts 2.39. You might want to write these two verses down. It's this connection right here that changed the view of a friend of Adam and Jen's and mine and Lawrence. Went from Baptist, you don't baptize infants, to within the last couple of years, of course you baptize infants. So he shifted from the Baptist view to the Presbyterian view. And it was because of these verses. Okay, so this is, this is big for understanding the Pado-Baptist view. And if I think about it, I'm going to post... The Gospel Coalition does a really cool series where they interview pastors who have changed their perspective on a big view. Sam Storms wrote one about why he shifted from the dispensational pre-trib view to the ob-mill view. And he kind of takes you through what led him to that decision. When it comes to this one, I think there's at least three of them where two, uh, two, of, them, two of them shifted from Presbyterian view to Baptist view and one of them shifted from Baptist to Presbyterian. So they're helpful in understanding how somebody goes from one to the other, sometimes really quickly. For, our, for the case of our friend, he shifted one problem or one issue was he started working in a Presbyterian church as a Baptist, clearly being around Presbyterian leaders it was probably just a given that in any amount of time he was going to shift. But this is the argument that he gave me for why he shifted. Do you have a question? Genesis 17, 9 and Acts 2.39. If you want to turn to Genesis 17, we're going to look at both of these. We're going to look at them from the Pado baptist view, and then we're going to come back to them a little bit later, and I'm going to show you the Baptist view on this. Because you know me, I'm all about the Abrahamic covenant. I'm all about the promises that God makes to Abraham. This is the appeal, though, that God made a promise to Abraham, and it's the same type of promise that he makes in the New Testament. All right, so Genesis 17, 9. He's already been unfolding the covenant with Abraham, so this is not the, the first time he gets this. This is where the sign of the covenant is being introduced to Abraham. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so this is, this is big right here. Circumcision was not just an afterthought. We see that um, there's anger by God towards Moses. There's anger by Moses' wife when he hasn't circumcised his child. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really odd account if you wanted to, to read through that. It's, wow, like it was serious uh, that this was supposed to take place. Um, so it's given to Abraham, you and your offspring. This sign is to be applied to you, and it's supposed to be applied early. Okay, I mean, there's specific amounts of, of time that they're, they're, they're supposed to wait until... Verse 12, eight days old, you're to be circumcised. 
Okay, so there was specific parameters put in place. Clearly indicates to us that infants, baby boys, were to be circumcised. Now, we flip over to Acts 2.39. Peter has been preaching this sermon to Israelites. We've got Jewish people that are hearing this sermon. We know right after this sermon that 3,000 uh, are added to the church because of his sermon. Let's start in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the big point of emphasis for the Pado baptist view, the big point of emphasis for, for our friend that was talking to me about why he shifted, that the Abrahamic covenant, God communicates to Abraham, this is for you and for your children, that Peter is reiterating that same principle here when he's communicating the gospel, he's communicating the act of baptism, he's saying that repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the promises for you and for your children. That it's the same language being used in the Abrahamic covenant. So if the sign was given to children of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign too should be given to those who are children in the new covenant. Okay, so we're going to come back and talk about this in a minute. Um, but, but I want you to understand their perspective on how these two verses fit together. Secondly, so the first argument, God worked through families in the old. He works through families in the new. We see examples, Genesis 17, Acts 2. The New Testament sets the precedent for the promises being applied to believers and their children through household baptisms. If you just want to jot down household baptisms, is a big argument for infant baptism. Household baptisms. Some examples of household baptisms, if you want to jot these passages down. Acts chapter 10. This is where Cornelius' family gets saved. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 16, verse 15, and verse 33. We have the Philippian jailer and Lydia, the seller of purple, whose households gets, uh, get baptized. Acts 18, 8. 1 Corinthians 1, 16. Might need me to repeat any of those. First Corinthians one sixteen. These are household salvations, household baptisms. Okay, so Pado Baptist view would say that we see individual, typically leaders of the family, responding to the gospel, getting saved. And then those promises being applied to their entire household. So everybody in their household is getting baptized. Okay? That, that for the Pado Baptist, for the Presbyterian view, it says, look, this is precedent in the New Testament for doing this. 
Because the Baptist view says, well, we don't see infants getting baptized in the New Testament, so why would we do it? The Pado-Baptist responds and says, yes, we do. We see whole households getting baptized. Surely there were infants in those households, and they were being baptized. That's the argument. All right? Third, the children of believers are considered holy by Paul. Children of believers are called holy by Paul. 1 Corinthians 7.14 For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, so the argument would be that Paul refers to the descendants of believers as being holy, set apart, different than unbelieving children that, that are born to unbelieving parents. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. And then lastly, the warning passages of Hebrews. The Paedo-Baptists would, would, would argue that because there's warning passages in Hebrews about people who fall away from the faith, or at least could fall away from the faith, implies that there's a mixed community in the local church. That there are children who have been baptized, that have grown up in the church, that have not put their faith in Christ, that fall away from the covenant people. The Paedo-Baptist view would say if the covenant community is only believers, then it makes no sense to have warning passages in Hebrews that warns them not to fall away, that they've tasted of the heavenly gift, that they've experienced the, the benefits of the covenant, don't fall away from it. So that would be the other aspect of their argument for this. Anybody aware of any other arguments for the Pado-Baptist view that I haven't mentioned that, are, that I'm just overlooking? All right, so it's rooted in the understanding of the Old Testament, how God was working through covenants with families. It's rooted in God's institution of the circumcision sign, the the sign of the covenant to Abraham and his offspring. It then transitions into the New Testament with them understanding household baptisms, that infants would be included in that, so they get the sign. It's rooted in Peter communicating that this promise is for you and your offspring, same language that God uses to Abraham and his offspring. Okay, that's the Pado-Baptist view. The Credo-Baptist view sees levels of discontinuity between the covenants. Specifically in that God's covenant people is now restricted to those who are spiritually regenerated and born of the Spirit. So the, the, the credo-baptist view says it's different in the New Testament. It's about being born spiritually, not physically. So in the Old Covenant, you're part of the covenant community if you're born physically from an Israelite. In the New Covenant, it's not that you're part of the covenant community if you're born from Christian parents. It's if you're born of the Holy Spirit, if you're spiritually regenerated. So the, the Credo, Baptist view, uh, Credo uh, Baptist view perspective is that the covenant people are different. They're different. It's, it's how you're being born. 
Old Testament, it's physical birth. New Testament, it's spiritual birth. That's what makes up the covenant people. While entrance into the old covenant community was based on physical birth, entrance into the new covenant community is based on spiritual birth. Some arguments in support for the credo-baptist view. Number one, the New Testament presents the concept of discontinuity between the covenants, a concept first presented in the Old Covenant. So the New Testament presents the concept of discontinuity between the covenants, a concept first presented in the Old Testament. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed them no, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Author of Hebrews, introducing the New Covenant, the concepts of the New Covenant, clearly there's some differences. He's saying that the Old Covenant had faults, otherwise we wouldn't need a New Covenant. The Old Covenant is obsolete, it's vanishing away, the New Covenant is here to stay. So there's clear communication by the author of Hebrews, and he's he's quoting from the Old Testament where this concept was first introduced, that a New Covenant was coming that was obviously going to be called new because it was different that there was going to be some discontinuity with it. That leads us to our second argument. There's now a fundamental change in how God deals with his people. He deals with them individually rather than tribalistically. God deals with people in the New Testament individually rather than tribalistically or or as a family, as as a group of people. Old Testament, it's all about the nation of Israel. New Testament, it's about the individual. We see this in Jeremiah 31. You want to jot down Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 30, But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. This is in context of the new covenant. There's coming a a day where there's a shift 
God's not dealing with families anymore. He's not dealing with fathers and then that subsequently involving the children, that he's dealing with each man individually. That's what the, the Credo Baptist view would say. It's that there's a fundamental change that happens in the New Covenant. God's no longer dealing with families. He's no longer dealing from a tribalistic standpoint. He's dealing on an individualistic standpoint. Third, in every clear New Testament example of baptism, the person baptized made a credible confession of faith in Jesus before baptism. So every example we have in the the New Testament, every clear example, it's always a person putting faith in Jesus before their baptism. So the household baptism, we would say, is is vague, and we're going to talk about it more in a minute. That It's not a clear-cut, good example for whether to baptize infants or not. But when we look at every clear example of baptism taking place, we've got examples in the Old Testament of children being circumcised that obviously obviously aren't old enough to put their faith and trust in Jesus. So we've got those examples. We've got Isaac being circumcised. We've got Ishmael being circumcised. That continues through the Old Testament. We've got babies that are being circumcised that can't make a profession of faith in Yahweh. We don't have clear examples in the New Testament of specific children being infant baptized. The only appeal that we have from a narrative standpoint are these household baptisms that may or may not include infants. Okay? The last argument here that we're going to deal with, not only is baptism for believers only, but you could also argue that other Old Testament defining realities are only for believers in the New Testament as well. Not only is baptism for believers only, so too are many of the Old Testament defining realities. Think about it. In the Old Testament, you had the temple where unbelieving Israelites were going as well as believing Israelites. It was part of their covenant community structure. In the New Testament, it's clear the temple, there's a fundamental change, right? It's not about a physical location. It doesn't matter where we meet as a church. We don't have to build giant structures. That that now the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. Doesn't indwell unbelievers like that. So there's a fundamental change in the temple. It's just for the believers in the New Testament. Because the temple is now understood as our bodies that the Holy Spirit indwells. Same thing with the law. The law was given to believers and unbelievers in that covenant community. Now the new covenant says the law is written on the hearts of the covenant people. Which only includes believing profession of faith it's the only people it includes They're, the law is written on their hearts so temple that was huge in the old testament it's only for believers in the new testament the law big in the old testament it's only really for the new testament believers written on the hearts holy spirit holy spirit indwells believers we've got the holy spirit and we're going to talk in the next couple of weeks about what was the holy spirit doing in the old testament how does that look but in the old testament we've got people like saul who had God's Spirit upon him. The Holy Spirit then leaves Saul. Probably not a believer, probably not in heaven, right? Probably not considered part of the true seed of Abraham. Holy Spirit's just for believers in the New Testament. So temple, law, Holy Spirit. I think we've got a good case to say that baptism, the sign of the covenant, is just for the believing community as well. But let's first, before we look at some specific issues that I would have with the Pado baptist view. Let's look at what the meaning of circumcision and the meaning of baptism is from Scripture. 
What was the meaning or purpose of circumcision in the Old Testament? First, remember, it was given in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, somebody remind me, what was the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant? Why did God institute that covenant? What was he trying to accomplish? Remember the Noahic covenant? He was trying to preserve a people from wickedness. What was he doing with the Abrahamic covenant? Anybody? Well, in, in, he was distinguishing his people in lifestyle from with the Mosaic covenant. So you're close. What was he doing with the Abrahamic covenant? No. Yeah, he was creating a, a human line for the Messiah. He was preserving a human line for the Messiah. So he says, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a great nation from you. And from this nation, I'm going to bless all other nations. It was the, the fuller fulfillment of what he promised in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to send a seed to Eve. Now I'm specifically telling you, I'm kind of picking up with that story. Well, where are we at in that unfolding of the plan? Oh, by the way, it's coming through Abraham. Because there was other people that God could have picked that came from Eve, but he chooses to bring the Messiah through the line of Abraham. And he now says, part of the way that we're going to ensure that happens is through circumcision. It's a sexual sign. Remember, the children of Israel were only supposed to marry other Israelites. Why? To keep that line in place. God says the Messiah is coming through the Israelite people. We're going to preserve this people. And one way, one simple way I'm going to remind you is that when you're having sex with each other, is that you know whether I'm with an Israelite or not. We're going to keep this line in place, and there's not going to be any confusion. You know, we talk about, well, is this person a believer? Is this person not a believer? I don't know. Like, they seem to say they're a believer, but maybe they're not really a believer. There was no question as to whether this person was part of the covenant people or not. If he was genuinely part of the covenant people, he looked different than other men in the area. And you knew that before you had a baby with him. So there was a clear distinction here. I am preserving a human line where my son will come from. So we have to understand the purpose of circumcision. Why, why was this sign given? What well, was given as a reminder? I've got a set apart people that Jesus is coming through. Also, it's important to note it was never given. And this is where the Pado baptist view really starts to break down for me. It was never given based on faith or the faith of parents, but on national descent it was never given on the base of faith so the kid didn't have to show faith to get circumcised and think about it the parents did not have to demonstrate faith for their child to be circumcised it was required whether they were putting their faith in yahweh or not it's for abraham's descendants and their descendants It's for your offspring and the offspring to come the Pado baptist view is not baptizing infants from unbelieving parents. It's for believing parents and their children. In the Old Testament, that's not how it was. If you came from national Israel, whether you believed in Yahweh or not, think about it. The prophets never questioned the right for Israel to be circumcised in their children. 
when Israel was in, was in idolatry and was worshiping other gods, the prophets never came out and said, we should stop circumcising our children until you guys put your faith in Yahweh because you aren't believing parents. That's never communicated. The expectation was always for circumcision to happen, whether the parents believed or not. So if we're going to appeal to the Old Testament for why we should baptize infants, we can't base it on believing parents circumcising their children because there was a whole lot of unbelieving parents circumcising their children. They had to. It was required. It was part of national Israel. The prophets never call this into question. They never tell people to stop circumcising their children until they're believers. They never say that it's wrong for unbelieving parents to be circumcising their children. The expectation was you better circumcise your children. This is what God has communicated. This is part of the covenant that he made with Abraham. In fact, we see Joshua circumcise a whole nation of people in Joshua 5.8. I guarantee you Joshua didn't sit down and have membership class with these people. Hey, are you guys believers? Like if you put your faith in Yahweh, great. Then we're going we're gonna to circumcise your kid before we go into um, the promised land. That's not the case. He says, whoa, we're about to go in the promised land. You guys aren't circumcised. Let's take care of that real quick. Make sure we're all right with God, and then we'll go in. I guarantee you he wasn't sitting down finding out who was and who wasn't believer. Okay, we got a group of believers over here. Let's circumcise their kids because they're the true part of the covenant community. You guys over here, you're not believers. We'll keep holding out for you that you'll get things right, and then we'll, then we'll circumcise your kids. Not the case. You're part of national Israel. You need to be circumcised. Circumcision is no longer required now because it accomplished its purpose. See, circumcision was meant to maintain a line for Jesus, right? Like that's, that's the purpose. So obviously when Jesus comes, we see circumcision, the requirement of circumcision go away. Luke 2.21. See, this, this seems like just a mundane part of the narrative passage. But when Jesus is taken by Joseph and Mary to be circumcised, it's the accomplishment of years and years and years of God's preservation of his people. Think about the people groups that probably were no longer around from the time that the Abrahamic covenant started to the time that Jesus was circumcised. Think about the people groups that blended in and dissipated and went away because other nations conquered them. I mean, have you ever met a Hivite today or a, or a Philistine today? No, those people groups are gone. We don't trace back to, you don't have somebody that enrolls at Trinity Christian and says, I come from the Philistine people. No, but we have kids that come that say, hey, I'm Jewish. Think about God's preservation of his people. Luke 2.21, and at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What that says is that God accomplished his plan. He instituted a human line for the Messiah to come through, and it worked. It worked. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite their attempts to go whoring after other gods, after their attempts to try to join themselves to other people, God would not allow it. Even as he, he, as he um, puts them into captivity, that's when people groups go away. When people groups like Babylon come in and take over, you typically don't hear about that people group anymore. They intermarry with the Babylonians, and they're gone. The lines get so blurred, you don't know who's who anymore. They just become one people group. That doesn't happen with the Jewish people. 
circumcision accomplished its purpose. Circumcision also anticipated the need for a circumcised heart. The implication in the Old Testament was, this is an outward thing, but something inwardly needs to happen. It's an outward thing, but something inwardly needs to happen. I need to be circumcised of the heart if I'm going to be obedient the way that God desires for me to be. Purpose of circumcision in the Old Testament, keep that line intact. It worked, and it goes away. What's the meaning, purpose of baptism? While circumcision was meant to divide racial lines, the new covenant community breaks down those lines. Now, that's not to say that non-Israelite people were never circumcised. But the agreement was, if you want to come be a part of us, you have to be circumcised. And essentially, those people then became Jewish people. So Abraham had the responsibility, if, if you purchase slaves, they're going to come in and now be a part of Israel, you have to circumcise them. Because they're now going to be considered Israelites. So it wasn't that it was racial in the sense of, if you don't come from Abraham, you got no business here. It was... You can be invited into this covenant community, but you'll be circumcised because you're now part of national Israel. Rahab abandons Jericho, becomes an Israelite. Um, Ruth leaves her country, tells Naomi, your people, your God are now mine. Consider me an Israelite. Consider me Jewish. I'm giving up all my rights with my country. I'm now part of you guys. So there was racial aspects to it, even though it wasn't specific, you had to be Jewish to enjoy the covenant. But if you came in, you were now considered Jewish, and you would, you would be circumcised as that. Whereas in the New Testament, we see these racial lines really separated. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Galatians 6, 15, if you want to jot those down. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Galatians 6, 15. We see that the racial divide go away in the New Testament. God says, my people are now part of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we're seeing the fulfillment of that today. There are Christians all over the, the world in ways that that's not been the case previously. It was confined to Israel in the Old Testament and the surrounding areas. God begins to disperse his people in the New Testament with persecution. They don't really come back to the, to the land together. Even in the 40s, when it was the 40s when Israel became a country, uh, even when they come back, not everybody comes back. That's why we've got Jewish people that are living here. We have big pockets of Jewish communities. God spread his people out and the gospel spread out. And there are people all over the world now that are saved. Baptism is never discussed in the New Testament as a sign of physical descent. It's never given to show physical descent. It was in the Old Testament. Circumcision was. It was a sign of physical descent. I come from Abraham. I'm a Jewish individual. Baptism's never discussed in that way. Baptism announces spiritual gospel realities and true union with Christ. Baptism announces gospel realities rather than anticipating them. Circumcision anticipated the need for a circumcised heart. Baptism announces gospel realities. It announces true union with Christ, not anticipating the need for it. All right, I want to walk through real quick. 
the issues that I have with paedo-baptism. I've given you the, the credo-baptist view, paedo-baptist view. Here's why they believe what they believe. Here's what they base that on. I want to give you real quick why, why we as a church do not baptize infants and why we won't baptize infants. Okay? Um, my, and if you want to write some of these down on the back, you can. Um, my issues with the paedo-baptist view. I believe in their claim to see continuity between the covenants, they fail to practice the continuity they're claiming. Okay, so they want to claim continuity. Oh, there's continuity between the old and the new. But as great as they feel about claiming continuity, they really fail to practice the continuity they're wanting to claim. I want to give you some ways that they fail to do that. First, if you're going to baptize children of believers, you must baptize grandchildren as well, regardless of the parents' faith. Let me say that again. If you're going to baptize children of believers, then you must baptize grandchildren as well, regardless of the parents' faith. The right to circumcise was based on association with Israel, not with faith. The children of Abraham had the right to circumcision, not the children of faith. To be faithful, grandchildren should be baptized in the church regardless if the parents are believers or not. I haven't talked to a Presbyterian yet that has seen this really happen in their church, where a grandparent comes forward and says, look, my children and, and, and their spouse are heathens. They want nothing to do with Jesus. But they've got kids that were just born. I'd like to have them baptized in our church. That would be uh, consistent with what we see in the Old Testament. That a, a descendant of Abraham was to be circumcised regardless of the faith of the parents. It was for the offspring and the future generations. So if, we're, if, if, we, if Sovereign Hope ever said, okay, we're going to start baptizing infants, then we would have to baptize infants of, children, of parents that weren't believers if they could trace somewhere back in their history that they had believers in their history. This could be applied to great-grandchildren. Hey, my children didn't get saved. We baptized them. They grew up. They walked away from the faith. And they had kids, and, man, they were worse than, than my kids. But then they've got kids, and I'd really like to see them baptized because I'm a believer. That would be continuity. I haven't yet seen or talked to anybody in, in a Presbyterian perspective that says that that happens at their church. It's all about believing parents baptizing their children. But to remain continuous with what was going on in the Old Testament, it wasn't based on whether the parents were saved or not. It was based on their, their descent from Abraham. Right, but even if the parents said, yeah, if you want to take my kid to get baptized at church, you can. If a grandparent really believes in infant baptism, they should want their grandchildren baptized. Right, but in talking with the two girls that are Mormons, they have told me that they have talked with family members who are not Mormon that have given permission for their children to be baptized on their behalf by these Mormons. No, I'm saying that I, I have yet to find a, a Presbyterian perspective that would say we would baptize the grandchildren. That the Presbyterian perspective would be we baptize the kids of believing parents, not grandparents. Right, because one of the guys that I read said my position changed. My position changed because we didn't baptize grandchildren and we wouldn't baptize grandchildren in our Presbyterian church.
No, I'm saying that the grandparents should be trying, and if it was allowed, the church should allow it. But I'm saying you don't see grandparents trying to do it, and you don't see churches doing it. Um, and to be consistent, that should be taking place. Grandparents should be desiring for their grandkids to be baptized, even if the parents don't have them in church. And the churches should be willing to baptize anybody and everybody that can trace in their history some type of Christian faith. Um, one of the, the guy that was writing about this, he said, consider the following scenario. John Sr. is a devout believer. John Jr. has never professed faith in Christ, and John III is one week old. Should John III be considered a member of the church and a proper candidate for Christian baptism? This is not the historic practice of Reformed Pado baptist churches, but why not? Those who espouse infant baptism bear responsibility to define the word infant. No one believes all infants in the world are worthy recipients of baptism. Certain infants are included, others are not. Considering John Jr. eligible for baptism in his infancy and John III ineligible is certainly one option on the table, but it's difficult to see how that would be consistent with Genesis 17 or the practice of God's people throughout the Old Testament. In no biblical covenant or redemptive historical era has the sacrament of initiation been for those who believe and their children. Okay, So the Paedo-Baptist view says baptism is for believing parents and their children, whereas the Old Testament says it's for Abraham and his descendants and their descendants and their descendants, irregardless of faith. That's not the practice of the Paedo-Baptist view. The Paedo-Baptists baptize infants that belong to believing parents. They aren't baptizing people just because they come from Christians at some point in their lives. It's inconsistent with what was happening in the Old Testament. Secondly, if you're going to baptize children of believers, you must also baptize older children, stepchildren, and adopted children. And I've yet to talk to a Presbyterian where this is happening. So, give you these, the example. Um, let's say, um, let's say that Miss Carolyn's not a believer and she gets saved. What should happen to be consistent is that she's now been brought into the covenant family. Her children need to be recipients of that blessing. So they should be baptized even though they're in their, how old are your kids? Okay, that we should bring them into the church irregardless if they're interested in Jesus. We should, we should, we should go to them. We should seek to bring them to the church to be baptized, to be recipients of the covenant. Because they're, they're her children. Because remember, God gives this command to Abraham and he says, look, this is for your physical children. But if you go purchase a slave and bring him into your house, he needs to be circumcised as well. So I turn into a Pado baptist and I adopt a 13-year-old from Uganda. The obligation is, is that now this 13-year-old is a child of Lauren and I. We should baptize them immediately because they're part of the covenant community. But I've yet to interact with somebody that hasn't said, no, we should wait till they show a profession of faith and then baptize them. They're not infants anymore. That's not what God gave to Abraham. He said, anybody that comes into your family. So give you another scenario. Um, Lauren passes away and I get remarried to a woman who has children already. They're not believers, but I marry her. She's now my wife. They're now my children. We should baptize them. That's the implication of what was happening in the Old Testament. When people who weren't physically from you became a part of your family, they got the sign of the covenant. You don't see this happening in Presbyterian churches. You see infants get baptized, and then you see people who make profession of faith get baptized. I've yet to talk to anybody, 
and, I, and I've tried to talk to people about this. I've yet to talk to anybody that has agreed with me that says, oh, yeah, we should be baptizing adopted kids. We should be, ado- we should be baptizing stepkids. You don't see that happening. But that, if we want to be consistent with what was happening in the Old Testament, and I'm all for consistency. If we're going to do it, let's do it. But if, if that's what was happening in the Old Testament, hey, we, bat- we were circumcising people irregardless of their parents' faith. Then if, if, if we've got a situation where uh, a grandparent, great-grandparent brings their child and says, look, um, I would like to see my great-grandchild baptized because I'm a believer. Now, my kids aren't saved, their kids aren't saved, but they've given me permission to bring our child to church today to have them baptized. It would be inconsistent with what he's saying is the, is the traditional Reformed church perspective. That it's for believing parents and their children, not for believing great-grandparents and their great-great-grandchildren. Okay? Um, we read that in Genesis, Genesis 17, 12. Uh, there was obligation to circumcise those who were not directly part of your family once they were brought into the family. This would imply the immediate baptisms of stepchildren and adopted children as well. Therefore, credo-baptism is no less generous than paedo-baptism if grandchildren and all offspring are not being baptized. Remember, the, the, the criticism towards the, the credo-baptist view is that's less generous application. In the Old Testament, children got included. You're saying children aren't included in the New Testament. It's no less generous than to say that grandchildren can't and great-grandchildren can't. It's not being consistent. Third, if you're going to baptize children of believers, you must also feed them the Lord's Supper. If we want to be consistent, they were eating the Passover before they were making profession of faith to Yahweh. You go back and read the Old Testament. You circumcised your kids and you fed them Passover. They celebrated it with you. I have, and and apparently... There has been contention when Presbyterian leaders have tried to introduce this into the Presbyterian church. You do not have conservative Presbyterian churches baptizing infants and then feeding them the Lord's Supper as soon as they're old enough to handle solid food. They continue to keep a Baptist perspective that the Lord's Supper is for after a profession of faith. But infant baptism is like circumcision. Again, I'm all about continuity, but let's be, let's be consistent. If we're going to baptize them, let's give them the Lord's Supper too in hopes that they finally realize, hey, this is for me. This, is, this has deeper spiritual meaning. You don't see that happening. You don't see that happening. And apparently I asked uh, a buddy of mine who uh, was going to Southern Seminary. I'm trying to think of the, professor, the, the guy who came to speak. I think it was... I think it was is J.I. Packer from the Pato Baptist view? It was somebody like that, somebody with that kind of recognizable name. A student in the crowd asked this individual, why don't we feed the Lord's Supper? And this well-known guy reacted angrily towards the guy in front of all these students but never really answered the question, just got angry that he was posing the question. Um, and the guy said it was really awkward because it was like, this is a valid question. Why aren't we doing this? But the guy didn't ever really offer a solution, just felt like the guy was out of place for even asking the question. It's a question that I'm asking. Hey, if I'm going to go with this, with this 
infant baptism idea, then I want to be consistent. If, if we're saying the covenants are, are, there's continuity there, then let's be consistent. You don't see this happening in the Pado baptist churches, though. They're, they're reserving the Lord's Supper for believers only. Number four, while the Old Testament presents God working through families, we really see that Jesus came to separate families. In Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've, I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus implies that people are going to follow him, people that are going to respond to the gospel, and it's going to divide families. It's going to divide families. It goes back to that individual perspective now, working with individuals and not so much with families. Jesus says, I'm dividing families because of the gospel, whereas the Paedo-Baptist view wants to keep this consistent family perspective of, well, everybody's part of the covenant community if somebody in the family is a believer. That's not what we see in the New Testament. Number five, if circumcision and baptism were so directly related, you would expect the apostles to promote the removal of circumcision based on its replacement by baptism, but that type of argument is absent. You want to jot down Acts 15. Acts 15 is a discussion on whether or not circumcision is still necessary within the life of a Christian. Should it remain? The conclusion is no. And there's no discussion about infant baptism replacing it. This would have been a perfect place for the Holy Spirit to communicate to us the connection of infant baptism and circumcision, but he doesn't. Instead, the New Testament continually downplays circumcision. As they're having to work through here in the book of Acts, circumcision not having to be applied to Gentiles, you would expect the discussion to turn to, no, we're not going to have to circumcise them because we're baptizing them. No, their infants don't have to be circumcised because they're baptized. You don't see that argument, though. You don't see the apostles argue that, hey, don't make them circumcise their kids. Make them baptize their kids. It's completely absent, and it would seem to be a great argument. Now, again, that's an argument from silence. But it seems it would make a great logical place for this to get thrown out to the church here. Hey, I understand you want the sign applied to your children. I get that. So do I. We're going to do it through baptism. You don't have the apostles saying that, though. All right, going back to Acts 2.39. If Acts 2.39 is applied directly to the Abrahamic covenant with no revisions, it has damaging and confusing results. Let's go back to Acts 2, 39. For the promise is for you and you for your children and for all who are afar off. Now, see, that's different than the Abrahamic covenant. God says, Abraham, this sign is for you and for your offspring. Peter says, this is for you, your children, and for people that are far away from here. Well, how do we know who to baptize then if it's not just for these people and their children and it's for people all over the place? It seems very confusing as to, well, who gets it and who doesn't get it? 
Who gets baptized and who doesn't get baptized? I thank, I thank Peter for clarifying. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter prescribes who this applies to. It's for people that get saved. It's for people that God calls to himself. It's for you. It's for your children. It's for people all over the place. Those that God calls to himself. It can't be just for these people and their children and then all of a sudden it's thrown out there to everybody else. Because again, if we want to apply what happened with Abraham, we would have to say that anybody that can trace their family history back to people that were present for this sermon have a right to be baptized today, whether they're believers or not. And that's just confusing and damaging to the gospel and what the meaning of baptism even is. But if we want to be consistent, Abraham and God had a conversation. And the conversation was, everybody that comes from you gets circumcised. It empowers Joshua to say, hey, we're about to go into the promised land, and we got a whole bunch of people here that aren't circumcised. But you guys all come from Abraham, so you have to be circumcised. And he circumcises them. Now let's just imagine that we could get together a bunch of people that came from these people that were present for the sermon, where Peter says, this promise is for you and your offspring. Can you imagine having a big baptismal service for a bunch of people that don't believe in Jesus, but they can trace their family history to these people? I mean, that doesn't seem to have any place in the New Testament. That's consistent if we want to stay consistent with the Old Testament, though, right? If we want to be consistent with what was told to Abraham, then we should track down these people. We should track down their offspring and make sure they've been baptized. Because the promise is for them. They're part of the covenant people because they came from these people that heard this sermon. That's consistent. What's not consistent is to baptize children that come from believing parents because we don't see that in the Old Testament. We see the exact opposite, really. We see people getting circumcised that don't have believing parents. And it all goes back to a conversation with God and Abraham. If we want to be consistent, then we baptize everybody that heard this conversation and everybody that comes from them. And then on top of that, people that are far away, whoever that includes. Inconsistent. It's inconsistent to apply this with Genesis 17. It's got damaging, confusing results if we try to do it. Number seven, households does not have to mean infants were included. Paedo-Baptists assume that household means infants were definitely present. I can make the argument that it was they weren't present. It's an argument from silence. Nobody wins in that argument, really. Some people say, hey, households, who doesn't have an infant in their household? I would say plenty of people don't. Plenty of people don't have infants. Um, a couple of other things that I think are important to note in that, if you go to Cornelius' situation, okay, his household gets saved and baptized, it also tells us that all of Cornelius' household was gathered to hear the preaching, that the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they all received gifts, and then they were all baptized. I guarantee you nobody thinks that that all happened to infants. You didn't have infants there that were hearing the preaching that... The Holy Spirit fell upon them, and all of a sudden they were gifted by the Holy Spirit, and then we said, oh, better baptize the newborn there because he's clearly got the Holy Spirit in him. That's, that's not consistent. So if we're going to say that the household had infants and they were baptized, then we've got to take the whole context and say, well, it applies to all of them the same way. Um, with the jailer situation, he was first preached to, and then all were baptized, and it says that all rejoiced believing in God. 
The same all that were baptized rejoiced in believing in God. So if we're going to say his household included infants, we're going to have to also say that those infants were rejoicing over their belief in God. That's inconsistent because they wouldn't have been able to. They wouldn't have been old enough to do that if we're talking about infant baptism. 1 Corinthians 1.16. We're almost done. This was the other mention of household baptisms. Paul's talking about baptism. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. If you skip to the end of 1 Corinthians... Okay, so he baptized the household of Stephanus. Okay, First Corinthians sixteen fifteen. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. AJ has not yet devoted himself to the service of any saints. Okay, he he doesn't understand hospitality. Right? Like AJ's not telling us, hey, we should invite people over to church and feed them and, and, and just enjoy fellowship with them tonight. The household of Stephanus was baptized by Paul. And then we're told the household of Stephanus were the first converts and they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. You can't say, well, the infants were part of the household that was baptized, but we're leaving the infants out of the part where we're talking about conversion and hospitality inconsistent if they were converts and if they were devoting themselves to the service of the saints then it's the same group that was baptized don't say that part of it included infants and then part of it obviously doesn't it's inconsistent with what scripture's saying if he's talking about the household of stephanus he can't be leaving out infants at one point and including them in the other Number eight, the holy children of 1 Corinthians 7.14 has nothing to do with baptism or church inclusion. Remember the, the unbelieving wife, the unbelieving husband, one spouse is saved, one isn't, their children are considered holy. It has nothing to do with baptism or church inclusion. If it includes baptism, the unbelieving husband should be baptized. Can you imagine how silly that would feel? Because he's called holy too. Right? Like in that passage, the child's called holy and the unbelieving husband is called holy because of the believing wife's faith. Can you imagine if our church ever got to the point where a woman could come in and say, here's my husband. He hates Jesus, but he, because he loves me, has said he will submit to baptism in our church. All right, buddy, the Bible calls you holy, so we're going to baptize you. This is a picture of union with Christ, being, being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. How inconsistent to apply that to an unbelieving husband. It takes away from the meaning of baptism. It takes away from the purpose of baptism. And I would hope that we would never get to the point, and I don't believe a Presbyterian church would baptize this man. So don't use this passage as an argument for it. Don't say, well, the children are considered holy, we should baptize them, if you're not going to baptize the unbelieving mom or the unbelieving dad in this situation as well. The argument is whether the marriage is holy or not, the child born unclean or not. The issue is, Paul doesn't want this woman thinking that this child has no value now because it's a pagan child. She's accepted Christ, but the husband's not coming around and the child's not coming around. He's wanting them to see the value there that through your faith, God can bring your husband to Christ and your child to Christ. That they now have an increased advantage to come to Christ because of your salvation. 
Don't disregard it. Don't walk away from this family. This family's not unclean. That was the issue. This woman gets saved and she's thinking, well, maybe I need to go marry a Christian man so I can have Christian children. Paul's saying, stay with your husband if he'll stay with you. Let God use that potentially as a way to bring him to Christ. Allow God to use it to bring your children to Christ. The conclusion, the covenant sign of circumcision did not require faith for all those who received it for a variety of reasons, even though it marked a person as a full covenant member. However, the same cannot be said of baptism because the church by its very nature is a regenerate community. The covenant sign of baptism must only be applied to those who have come to faith in Christ. It's at this point we see the crucial discontinuity between the old and new covenant communities, a point the Paedo-Baptists fail to grasp. Colossians 2, 11 through 13, we'll close with this. It's the one passage that takes circumcision and baptism and discusses it side by side. Colossians 2, 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision pointed to a greater need. Baptism is the fulfillment of that need. It's applied to those where true union with Christ has happened. It's a picture of being buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life with Christ based on his perfect life, his perfect death, and his perfect resurrection. Now, God had a purpose for the Old Covenant. He had a purpose for what he did in the Old Covenant, and we've seen that over these past few weeks. We don't just completely disregard it as of no value, but the New Testament communicates that it's vanishing away, that it's obsolete. The New Covenant is here, and the New Covenant is a different covenant. A different covenant with different implications for us practically on a daily basis. And one of those big differences I believe we can see clearly in Scripture. And again, there's room for disagreement here because there's people that could preach an amazing sermon that would make me look silly on infant baptism probably. But I believe we can clearly see from Scripture that it's believers who have repented and put their faith and trust in Christ that get the sign of the covenant because they are the only true members of the covenant family. The different covenant family in the New Testament. It's communicated to us in the Old Testament. There's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant different from the old covenant where I'm going to write their, the law on their hearts. And they're going to be obedient to me. And they're going to be my people. Let's pray and then I'll take any questions you might have. God, I'm thankful that... If we give ourselves some time, we make some time to study, God, you can reveal truth to us. Father, I'm thankful for the weeks that I've had to, to be in your word, to understand some things for myself, things that I've accepted before in the past that I was just simply told, but couldn't have a really educated discussion about with somebody. God, I'm thankful that you have continued to reinforce my faith on some of these issues. God, I'm thankful that we have your word in a language that we can read and understand. I'm thankful that we have the Holy Spirit who can illuminate these truths so that we can see how the Bible fits together. 
God, I'm thankful for the Old Covenant. I'm thankful for the work that you did in the Old Covenant. I'm thankful for circumcision. I'm thankful for how you preserved a line just like you promised to Abraham where all nations of the world could be blessed. Father, I'm thankful that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to be circumcised. God, it's proof that you accomplished your plan, that you preserved the line for your Messiah to come through. God, I'm thankful for the new covenant and and the newness of the new covenant. God, I'm thankful that you're calling out a people from all races, from all people groups. God, I'm thankful that you're calling a people that has the law written on their hearts, that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God, I'm thankful that it's clear to us that that you have a covenant people in the New Testament, that that you're continuing to build and grow. God, I pray that we would understand how baptism fits into that. Not just because I've told people this morning what to think or or what I believe, but God, that they would see it in Scripture for themselves. That their faith would be their own, that they would own it themselves. And not just because somebody that, uh, that they've heard speak shared it with them. God, I pray that you would use our church to fulfill the great commission that we would see more and more people baptized here at Sovereign Hope because they're putting their faith and trust in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.